Shalom. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Or maybe I'll just say a sawadikrab. <laughs> My family and I returned uh, earlier this year, and we found out that uh, it is harder to leave Thailand than we thought. So it's been a challenging two months uh, adapt, uh, coming back to Singapore. Sorry. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, things have changed so much in Singapore. The last time we came back was two years, and it was before COVID. So coming back to Singapore, um, I think the last two years, Singapore has taken a very different tangent in dealing with COVID than in Thailand. So coming back to Singapore was really uh, rather strange. Another strange thing was last week when I came to visit uh, Good Shepherd. Commonwealth was so different from 12 years ago. <laughs> we used to come to the hawker center after cell groups, you know, from St. James, and now it just totally transformed in many ways. But thankfully, God is still the same. Christ still reigns, and he still calls us to be faithful in witnessing for him and to fulfill his mission on earth for this time. So today, again, I've always been tempted to preach about missions, but since we are seasonal land, we will use this parable and this story to take us through uh, these 40 days before we come to Holy Week, Good Friday, and Easter. Now, Many of you would have known this parable. It's a very popular, very commonly preached uh, parable. In fact, this parable is so popular that even the non-Christian world would know what a good Samaritan is all about. The organization exists in almost every country. It's about organization by helping the poor and the needy. But do take in mind that whenever Jesus speaks about the parable or gives a teaching, it is never just to promote or to tell a good moral story. His teaching always contains very radical lessons, you know, designed to confound the ideas or perceptions of God to the Jews during that time. And more often than not, his teaching would challenge and enrage his listeners. And so today's parable is also no different. And just before we, Jesus uh, started on this discourse on the parable of the Good Samaritan, he had prayed in verse 21. He said, I thank you, Lord, Father, Lord of heaven and on earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Of course, the wise and understanding is often referred to the Jewish leaders, especially the religious leaders and experts who think they know everything. Whereas the little children are those who are humble, who seek God in earnest, and they are the ones who will be enlightened to the truth of God's word. So this morning, our story begins with someone who is of wise understanding, an expert of the law. In that time, he would have been an expert in everything to do with the Jewish law contained in the Torah or the law of Moses. He would be an expert in all the civil laws, the religious laws, ceremonial laws, and the moral laws. Perhaps he would have several PhD in the field of Jewish laws. Now this expert went to see Jesus in order to test Jesus whether he knew the Mosaic law. And he was attempting to trip Jesus up that Jesus, in order that Jesus might say something different or contrary to what is written in the Torah. And so he asked Jesus, Rabbi, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responded by turning the question back to this lawyer. Now the lawyer becomes the defendant. And Jesus, the persecutor asks, prosecutor asks, not persecutor, prosecutor. 
ask, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Immediately the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus affirmed his answer and said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you shall live. Now, the lawyers and the religious leaders have always been quite confident of themselves because they feel that they were able to fulfill or to obey all the laws written in the Torah, 613 of them, to be precise, of which 248 of them are what you call the positive laws, you know, the things that you should do to love your God, um, to read um, the Shema twice a day. And then beyond that, there's the 365 negative commandments, which are the do not, do not steal, do not commit murder, do not covet, do not consult, uh, necromancer, etc., etc. So they have been confident about their love for God. But what about the neighbor? As the passage that was just read from Leviticus chapter 19, you would have noticed that loving the neighbor referred to loving their fellow Jews and not foreigners. It refers to strangers, the sojourners, the orphans, and the poor in their midst. And verse 18 ends very, with a very clear indication here. You shall not take revenge or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the lawyer could be thinking, if he could exclude certain people as neighbors, such as the Gentiles, the barbarians, the murderers, maybe the criminals, and some may even include Manchester United fans, he could <laughs> easily fulfill the law, love the neighbor, and have eternal life. The story could have just stopped there. But he went on and asked Jesus. Maybe he felt that Jesus, since Jesus was agreeable to his first question, now he wants to justify himself further. And he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? But of course, Jesus had other ideas. And he answered this second question with the parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so here we have a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and here he encountered robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is probably about 30 kilometers away. It's downhill with lots of crevices for bandits and robbers to hide. It's almost like the Straits of Malacca, you know? A narrow strait where pirates come, steal, rob you, and flee away to the nearby countries. And so he was left for dead. What happens next? A priest came down the road, saw this naked man who was almost half dead, and what did he do? He walked onto the other side and passed him by. Next, a Levite came by too, and he too ignored the man, passed by him on the other side, and just walked on. To this, the Jewish listeners would be terribly shocked. Both the priest and the Levite are called to a holy vocation. They represent the people. They serve the temple. They were in the service of God. Yes, they were not like the robbers who injured the man, but neither did they help him. 
to the Jew listening, it would almost be blasphemous, you know, for that to have happened. It's like almost like uh, you see an accident happen on the road outside Good Shepherd, a man laying half dead there, and along comes Bishop, <laughs> and along comes Pastor Jonathan, <laughs> and they sneakily walk over to the other side of the road and just walk on by. It's almost unthinkable, is it? Shocking for people of God to do such thing. It would be an insult to the Jewish religious institution. Now, why did the priest and Levite not help a fellow Jew? Fellow Jew? I can think of three reasons. One of which is perhaps they thought this man was dead. And if they have come in contact with a dead person, they would be contaminated. And they will be ceremonially, ceremonially unclean for seven days. And they have to undergo two ritual washing and, and do a sin offering as well. All this is very much of a hassle. It is a big hassle and very troublesome. So they walk by. Second reason could be maybe they feared for their own safety. They thought maybe the robbers and bandits are still hiding around. And so they quickly walked away, avoiding the same plight. Or thirdly, it's the whole aspect about entanglement. Maybe they knew it would be just too complicated to get involved. How would they get this man to safety? They don't have a horse. They don't have a donkey. Who would rehabilitate him? Who's going to bear all the cost? Maybe it's best to leave this man and let someone else help. <clears throat> and these are the common obstacles that we face when we are called to help or see people who are in need. There's always a hesitation. There's always a cost to be paid. What is it going to cost me in terms of my time, my finances, my regular life? Or perhaps sometimes we have had bad experiences in the past in helping people, and therefore we refrain from helping those who are in need in the present moment. Therefore we hesitate. We think twice. We count the cost. And very often, it is easy to just skip across the road and just walk on by and hope that someone else would come along. And indeed, there was someone else that did come along. Who was this person? The hero of the story wasn't a priest. It wasn't a Levite. In fact, it was a Samaritan. And Jesus said, But the Samaritan came to where he was. He was overwhelmed with pity or compassion. He bound up his wound with oil and wine, put him on his horse while he walked, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he gave the innkeeper two denarii, which was two days' wages. And he said, take care of this man, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. It's not the priest, it's not the Levite. They just walked on by. And now, a Samaritan comes along to help this man. It's like Jesus is like plunging in the needle deeper into the lawyer's question. A Samaritan, you have to be kidding. To the lawyer, a Samaritan is not the neighbor. If anything, a Samaritan was a sworn enemy. They hated each other. I mean, if you read about the history between them, you can see or read about the names the Jews give to the Samaritans, and vice versa. It wasn't just racial prejudice, but a deep sense of personal animosity that has been built up <clears throat> over many years. 
since the division of the northern and southern kingdom. And since then, there's always been like a tit-for-tat, revenge, and a feud between the Jews and the Samaritans. When we read the book of Nehemiah and um, Ezra, we knew that when the Jews returned from Assyria from the exile, the Samaritans tried to sabotage and delay the rebuilding of the temple. And during the Greek occupation of Palestine, the Samaritans sided with the Sadducees to fight against the Jews uh, during the Maccabean Wars. But the Jews were victorious. And what did they do when they won? They completely destroyed the Samaritan temple in Mount Gerizim, completely destroyed and ravaged the whole Samaritan territory. So it's this deep-seated animosity and hatred they have for one another. And during the time of Jesus, Samaritans would often look out for Jews who would travel from the north to the south, you know, to Jerusalem. They have to pass by Samaria. And if they see any of them, they will attack them and even kill them. And therefore, you know, a lot of Jews going to Jerusalem will often avoid Samaria to go to Jerusalem. And around the time of Jesus, a band of Samaritans profaned the temple in Jerusalem by scattering the bones of dead people in the sanctuary. And this deepens the hatred and resentment between the Jews and the Samaritans. And when Jesus told the story, this incident about profaning the temple would have still been fresh in the minds and the hearts of a Jew. And to say now this Jew is the hero of the story, man, this is something very radical. While living in Singapore, many of you would have heard and read about stories about the neighbor from hell. I avoided the last 12 years in Thailand. Well, we also have our similar neighbors in everywhere we go. It's a tit for tat feuds that sometimes last for years. And the list of grievances just, that just grows and grows. You know, I just was reading about this neighbor that they've been fighting for the last 11 years just next to each other. So imagine, um, I mean, the, 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 the deep animosity between the two, the two neighbors, the two parties involved is almost indescribable. I mean, it's really deep and rooted. Imagine you are one of the neighbors. Imagine that you're one of the innocent neighbors that has been bullied, you know? Um, your space has been encroached, late night, late night noises, TV, maybe splashing of liquids outside your door, um, neighbors shouting uh, vulgarities at you, giving threats, or even damaging your property. And all of a sudden, HDB offers this neighbor the Neighbor of the Year Award. <laughs> And you, in turn, get painted a villain in this whole matter. So this is what it was like for a Jew listening to this, a Samaritan, a hero in this story. You know, I just returned from Thailand, and next month we'll be moving back to our home. And uh, yes, last week we went to visit our home, got our keys, and we noticed our neighbor over the last years have slowly encroached <laughs> into the front of our gate with not plants, but rubbish, literally rubbish. So do pray for us to be to be civil-minded and to be approached uh, to our neighbors and be amicable in the story. Uh, these things happen, and these things can be built up. Now, back to the story. Why would a Samaritan help a Jew who was an enemy? And the clue is seen in verse 33. It says here that the Samaritan had compassion on him. 
compassion, pity, you know, feel bad for him. But no, this word compassion in Greek, splagnosomai, is a very special word that is used in the gospel. It is used only exclusively for Jesus when he had compassion on the loss, when he wept over Jerusalem. So the word used for Jesus' compassion was splagnosomai. There's only two other instances where splagnosomai is used, here in the Good Samaritan and the father of the prodigal son when he saw the son running back. So this word splagnosomai was a very special word reserved in the gospel for the compassion of Christ. It is more than just a feeling of pity, feeling sorry for that person, because often these feelings, they just go away. But rather, splagnosomai refers to an intense distress and pain you feel deep inside your bowels, in your intestines, in your stomach. It's so intense that you have to do something about it. It pushes you, forces you to do something. Put it crudely, it's like having a diarrhea, you know? <laughs> you need to do something. If you don't, you suffer the consequences. So it's, splagnosoma is something that moves you, okay? It is a love, a compassion that moves you to love the unlovable, to love even your enemy, to take pity, to care for them. You know, as Christians, we always like to pray for agape love, isn't it? Agape love is such a common word that we use. A love, a divine love, a supernatural love, an unconditional love that we do not possess. We ask God for agape love in order to love our enemies, to love the lost. Perhaps another thing that we've got to pray for is compassion for splagnosomai. You know, in order that we can feel the lostness of mankind without Christ, the brokenness of people who are hurt and hurting in whatever plight they're going through. Compassion, deep insight that moves us beyond ourselves to love others without hesitation, to love others like Christ loved them. So pray God, pray to God to give us a holy diarrhea <laughs> to move and to love others. And so when Jesus um, finished the parable, he asked the lawyer, which of the three do you think proved to be a neighbor to this man? The lawyer answered, the one who showed mercy. Notice, the lawyer couldn't even say the word Samaritan. The man who showed mercy. At this point, Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Wow, this confident, smug lawyer just waiting to entrap Jesus, prideful in his ways, perhaps now gets blown away. The lawyer knew now he was not able to love his neighbor. He could not fulfill the law. And by Jesus' standard, he could not inherit eternal life. And Jesus told this parable because the lawyer first asked, what do I do? What can I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus told the expert, if you want eternal life, you love God completely, perfectly, and love your neighbor perfectly. And then do likewise. Do likewise and you shall have eternal life. Do likewise. And this is the way of salvation for many religions in the world, even the Jews. It's all about what we do to get eternal life. You know, apart from the Ten Commandments, as I mentioned, there's 613 laws that's broken down into bits 
that they must obey to the very dot. In Thailand, the monk, it's interesting, a Thai monk has got 227 uh, rules, or precepts they must follow. And a nun, a Buddhist nun has 311, so a woman has more to do. And one thing we all agree, regardless which religion we are, you know, besides Christianity, is that humans, I mean, one thing all religions agree, including Christianity, is that religions, religion, sorry, humans are sinners. Human are sinners. We need to change. And other religions prescribe that we need to do, do good works in order to pay for our sin. But very often, religion makes us more miserable than feeling good about ourselves. Because the standard of perfection is just so high. How do you love your neighbor as yourself? How do you love Manchester United fans, Liverpool fans, whatever it is? We can't. Some people think our life is like a balancing scale. The more, do, more good deeds that we do, it outweighs the bad deeds, that maybe we are okay. But the Bible tells us, you know, with no uncertain terms, that the problem with sin is not because we commit sin, but because we are sinners by nature. We sin because we are sinners, not because we commit sin. I repeat, we sin because we are sinners. I have met many Thais who are very good people, genuinely very good people. They do their best to do good, to be kind, to help the poor, donate to charities, perform regular rituals in the temple. But they tell me sometimes, no matter how much good they do, it's never enough. They know that despite all the outward bravado, inside they know their hearts, their motivation, their thoughts, their intentions are never pure and perfect. And so the question of the law expert, what can I do to inherit eternal life? The answer is nothing. There is nothing you can do to get eternal life. It is God's gift through Jesus. <clears throat> so Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 to 8 tells us very clearly. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of doing, not the result of works, so that we may boast. It is only through Christ's great love, his kindness, his mercy, his immeasurable riches through Christ that we can receive forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. Back to this parable. Another way of looking at this parable is an allegorical interpretation. It's very interesting. And when we do an allegorical interpretation, we find ourselves in this parable. We have become the traveler. The traveler that was beaten up, robbed, and left for half dead. 
the bandits would be the devil. In John 10, 10 says, only comes to kill, to steal, steal, and to destroy. And right from the beginning, when we see Satan having succeeded in enticing Adam and Eve to disobey God, sin has become part of humanity. That was the work of the devil. And humans, all of us, have suffered and become victims. Since then, our created image of God, our Imago Dei, has been marred by sin. Today we suffer, all of us, Christians, non-Christians alike, we suffer the far-reaching consequences of our own sins, our bad decisions. The consequences of the sin of others. The consequences of uh, earth that has been cursed. Humanity still bears the image of God, but we also bear the scars of sin in our lives. Mentally, morally, socially, and physically, we show the effects of sin in our lives. In fact, we walk through life often looking more like a traveler who has been ravaged, ravaged by sin, beaten up, half-naked, and in such pity condition, pitiful condition. The priests and Levites, perhaps they represent the religious system of the world, full of pomp, pomp and outward show, full of pride, trying to lead us to fulfill all the, all the rules, the rituals and regulations, believing that all these can lead us to eternal life. But we know that they cannot save our soul. And so here comes the good Samaritan, the good Samaritan, the great Samaritan, who is Jesus himself. Jesus, who has left his own neighborhood of heaven to come into our hostile neighborhood to have compassion on us. He gave and he gave more than just oil and wine. He gave his life on the cross so that his blood could heal us of our sin. So as we come for Holy Communion, this reminds us of the sacrifice of Christ. So that in Christ's love, Christ's love could heal us of our wounds and our brokenness restoring our image, our created image of God, our Imago Dei, so that we can return to God as, be, as His beloved children. And perhaps today in the season of Lent, we can reflect upon Jesus as our good Samaritan. Consider how He has picked us up from the miry clay, from our world of sin, of our wounds and hurts and all the suffering we have endured, healing us and restoring us and saving us. You know, when I think of a good Samaritan, I would always think of one person, and that was my late father-in-law. And those who knew him knew that he was almost a perfect man in every way. He was a humble man, a kind man, who treated people equally. You know, he grew up in Malaysia, uh, the son of a rich man who owned plantation. But you hear stories of him, you know, always taking care of the workers, even the lowliest of workers. He will make sure they are paid, they have food to eat. He will drive to town to buy oil for them. And when they were sick, he would take care of them. His brothers wouldn't do that. He would do that. And, you know, um, throughout the people I, and the people that he knew, you know, would tell me stories about how great this man was. But no matter how good he was, he knew that he was not perfect. He knew he needed Jesus. And just one year before he passed, you know, my wife had the greatest joy of praying with him 
to receive Jesus in his life as Lord and Savior. My father-in-law has eternal life, not because he was a good person. Yes, he was. But because of what Jesus did for him and how much Jesus had loved him. So brothers and sisters, when we put our faith in Jesus, he saves us. He forgives us. He fills our account with his righteousness as if we were keeping the law perfectly on our own. If you have never trusted Jesus, do not put it off. Believe in him today. Only Jesus can qualify us for eternal life. It is only he can provide us a way to heaven. It is a gift for us. There's nothing we can do. It is given to us because he loves us and because he has compassion on us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you above all things, Lord, that you are God of love. And God of love that moves to go beyond himself, to come down and see us in our pitiful condition. We thank you in this season of Lent that we can call you our good shepherd and our good Samaritan. A great God who loves us in every way tries to restore us to be your children. And I pray for my brothers and sisters that we do not take this love, this compassion of yours for granted. We may dig deep into our prayer closet to seek you, and to find you, and to renew our love for you as a response of your love to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Reverend Andrew, for bringing us to good.